you know, the first question is, why do we need friends at all? Or how badly do we need friends? I think everybody understands that we, you know, that we need friends. That's, that's a stupid question to even be asking. The, que- the real question is, why? And what are we looking for in friendship? And I think you said it very well, although you kind of glossed over it. And that is, is that we all need somebody that we can depend on. We understand we can't get through this life together. I mean, by ourselves. I don't have any friends that I don't trust. In order to become a friend of mine, I must be able to trust them. I must know that I can trust them in some arena, in some form or fashion. And the more I can trust them, the closer a friend they become. Welcome to Peter and Phil's Courageous Conversations, a podcast addressing race relations and social issues in hopes that you'll be inspired to do the same. Now, let's begin our conversation with your hosts, Dr. Peter Weinstein and Dr. Philip Nelson. So, Dr. Weinstein, how do you determine your friends? Good question. You know, I, I, um, how do I determine my friends? I think a lot of it has to do with just the ease of conversation, the, the comfort with um, just chit chat. And, and I, I can, it, it's, I, I think I, I can make friends fairly easily. Um, and a lot of it just has to be the, the comfort in how they respond to my somewhat, let's just say, sarcastic cynicism and uh, the dry humor that I have. If I can get people to laugh, they'll probably be a friend. If they're a little bit too dull, they'll probably be a colleague. <laughs> um, but no, I. I it's interesting because I have, in the last few years, I've made a lot of friends just from having conversations through SCVMA and, and learning about people. So I think when it comes to making friends, it, it's, a, it's a thin slice. It's really in that first few seconds of conversation. And if I can get them to smile, then... I think, and part of the thing with masks is, is you can't really read people's uh, facial languages, but with, even with Zoom, I think I can, I can make friends just by getting people to smile. And, and that's really the first test is, is if, they, if they're willing to smile with me or laugh at me, like you do. Which, which one do I do? You laugh, laugh at me. With, with, yeah. with you, I do not laugh at you. <laughs> I so, knew you said. I knew that's what you were kind of, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, so the last four months, five months since I have moved from a, in the executive director role to more of a independent, I've had to make new friends. I've had to build a following and uh, doing Zoom frequently or meeting people for the first time. And to me, it's just really a gut feeling more than anything else. So how about if I turn that question back to you? What is it? No, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm in charge right now. Yes, sir. Yes, um, you and Nicole always accuse me of dominating the conversation, and so it's not an accusation; it's a fact. 
So you kind of answered these questions, but I still want to be a little—I uh, still want to be a little more direct with it. Do you have enough friends? I don't think you can never have enough friends. I, I think there's there's levels of friends. You know, the people who you haven't talked to in 20 years that you can pick up the phone and have a conversation with, and it's just like you, just like you were in high school or college or vet school or whatever the case may be. I don't think you can ever have enough friends because you never know when somebody's going to need you and your support and you never know when you're going to need somebody else's support so i i don't think you can ever have enough friends there's always this concern of of people taking advantage of you quote unquote or or taking advantage of your friendship i don't think i've ever had that situation happen so why do we need friends why do we need friends maybe i shouldn't say we why do you need friends <laughs> why do i need friends i'm going to say that because from an from an ego standpoint, from a, a personal standpoint, knowing that people like you and then trust you is a, is a good feeling. It fills you up. It, it makes your heart beat. And I think that, that you, you could always use a couple of new red blood cells pumping through your system, AKA friends, from that standpoint. So I, I think we need, we need friends because they are there when things are difficult. They are there to listen. And from a reciprocity standpoint, they are there so you can help others, which at least in my case, makes me feel good as well. You said several times when, I, when you were stumbling with the first question and trying to figure out where you want to go, which is, by the way, I thought was extraordinary for me because I don't know how I would have dealt with that question if somebody just blurted it out but you said several times that one of the cardinal characteristics and I'm I'm paraphrasing here uh, of a friend is someone who appreciates your humor why is that so important to you I think I use it to help break down barriers I think I think it's it's a trait that has been pointed out that I have my somewhat desert-like or dry humor um, that takes people a little bit of time to actually figure out what I'm getting at, like three or four seconds. So I, I think I use humor as a playing field to set the bar. And I think to me, we need to be laughing more together. We need to be able to laugh at ourselves. But just as was happening in our prologue before we started at the actual conversation where I made you laugh by one simple sentence, I think laughing together brings people together. And so, um, yeah, I, I think humor and laughter is a something we can bond on frequently. Everything you said sounds good, and I, and I totally agree. But when you start teasing the process of selecting a friend, you inferred that if they don't laugh at your jokes, your dry humor, your desert humor that I translate into just bad jokes, if they don't laugh in, at your jokes, you infer that they may not be the close friend, that they might be the colleague. If it takes them two or three acquaintances before they realize you were joking all the time, you weren't expressing an opinion, but you were being sarcastic, you inferred that they might not become your friend. And the reason I'm saying this is because I'm not sure it's because they don't appreciate a bad joke or if it's because of their wit. 
and that you interpret a lack of wit or a difficulty in analyzing wit with intellect? It has nothing to do with intellect. It has everything to do with, I think, my trying to find a common thread with which I am comfortable. And um, it may not be the first date, may not be the second date, but usually after a couple of conversations, courageous or otherwise, we can break down some barriers. Some people use politics. Some people use the weather. Yeah. Um, I tend to use dry, sarcastic humor to, to kind of as a thermometer. Now, it doesn't mean anything except that that's just my safety zone from that standpoint. I'm an extroverted introvert. Personally, the question you asked is probably really, really difficult because I'm not one to routinely go out and look for new friends. It happens in, in its own fashion just because I'm sitting at the table with somebody and you kick up a conversation and all of a sudden there's a common thread and we get to laughing with one another or we get to talking. It's like I was the guy at the dance who would wait for the girl to ask him to dance and say- It's just because you didn't know how to dance. And and nor could I jump, but that's a whole different discussion. (laughs) So actually I could jump. So I I think it's not that I don't uh, have friends that don't have a sense of humor. They probably took a little bit longer for them to get onto the, the friends list. And those friends who are listening to this, don't read between the lines. You're still my friends, even if you don't laugh at my jokes, just because Phil wants to give me a hard time right now. I got a feeling they don't care. I I think I think your your real friends know exactly what kind of jokes you tell and still put up with you Um. (laughs) (laughs) like you. (laughs) So, you know, um, you know, you're making me sweat. (laughs) Good, good. I, I just find it somewhat ironic that humor is such an important screener filter for you and that your humor is a biting humor. I love the way you describe it, but when you use humor, you are usually using humor to soften a pointed edge in your belief system that you feel compelled to express. And it is nowhere near the bait that you have been describing uh, about friendship. Uh, Your humor is actually, if you want to be my friend, then you need to allow me to express myself on this topic, and you'll at least have to tolerate this opinion. And for me, it's the uncovering of a a trap to see if people are going to step in it or not. It is much more deeper than just can we get along? Can we laugh together? Kind of thing. Because, you know, if, if you were just telling a joke, which you rarely do, I would understand it. But it isn't. It is part of your common conversation. And before you know it, you some you know we realize, oh, he was trying to be funny. At the same time, we realize, wait a minute, he just threw down the gauntlet. He just established his position. That is why your humor doesn't always come across. There's a passive aggressiveness to it. Exactly. So why do you pick your friends like that? As I noted, I I don't find it easy to go up to somebody and say, hi, want to be my friend? Because uh, that can get, that. that's the Harvey Weinstein in me. Sorry, bad joke. Ooh. <laughs> um, oh my God. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, another one. That just... Yeah, another one that's just, okay. Don't, yeah. forget to, don't forget to tip your waiters and waiters. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it would be easy for you and I 
to make friends with anybody by going up to them saying, hi, I'm Dr. Peter Weinstein. I'm a veterinarian. Tell me about your pets. You just started a conversation that you'll be sitting there listening to. But I don't do that. As I said earlier, I'm a, an introverted extrovert. When I have to be on, I'm on. When I don't have to be on, I'm off. And so to be put into situations frequently, I just don't know how to start conversations. So I will kind of jump into a conversation with a one-liner to help test the waters, to just see where the room is, and then get integrated into a conversation from that way. It's my defense mechanism. It's, it's what I use to deal with my lack of self-confidence in other ways, which I know you may find hard to believe, but. Hold, hold, hold that thought. My coffee's getting cold. I'll be right back. I just want to take a minute to thank uh, Nationwide for their support and continue to appreciate their support that they provide, not just for our podcast, but for the entire veterinary profession. I like to walk real slow. So you think my house is twice as large as it really is. Oh, I am sure that you had to have moving sidewalks put in so you could get from point A to point B. <laughs> Why do I feel like I'm applying for a Supreme Court justice position at the moment? I don't know. You know, I think you're not used to my, my asking the questions. Usually the roles are flipped. And you didn't want to answer the question when I tried to turn it back to you. I tried to flip the script and it's like, uh-uh, no, today I'm <laughs> like, makes today different than any other day. So no, I was it was just that by flipping the script, you would go back to the normal, comfortable uh, position of hiding behind my monologues and then blaming me for dominating the conversation, you know. But I'm actually having fun here. And and, and I will ask your question at some point. Uh, <laughs> We only have a couple hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know we only have a couple of hours. Um, I find it interesting, and I, I think you're going to probably think about this for the rest of the week. You know, the first question is, why do we need friends at all? Or how badly do we need friends? I think everybody understands that we, you know, that we need friends. That's that's a stupid question to even be asking. The que The real question is, why? And what are we looking for in friendship? And I think you said it very well, although you kind of glossed over it. And that is, is that we all need somebody that we can depend on. We understand we can't get through this life together. I mean, by ourselves. I don't have any friends that I don't trust. In order to become a friend of mine, I must be able to trust them. I must know that I can trust them in some arena, in some form or fashion. And the more I can trust them, the closer a friend they become. And so those people that you can call up without seeing for 10 years and have genuine joy just hearing their voice and not caring what their political views have evolved to become or not caring what their experiences have been, you know that if needed, 10 years later, you could call them and say, I'm in dire straits and I need your help. And maybe you, they can't come to your rescue, but maybe they will put you up while you're working out your problems. Maybe they'll do something for you as if you were family. Those are my close friends. And I don't have a lot of those, but I don't necessarily seek them either. They just develop. And I have been surprised in my lifetime that some people that I have not considered those type of friends have exhibited those traits toward me. And I have felt guilty that I did not know that they would go so far for me. Friendship is the glue of society. And I think we have 
mistaken friendship for clanship. You know, we seem to be seeking similar ideologies, similar political views, similar houses, similar income levels, similar tax issues, everything but what really matters. And because we have devolved into these meaningless characteristics, we've been threatening society. And because we've, we've, we have been, we have devolved into these meaningless, relatively meaningless uh, comparisons, it, it has now allowed us to undermine truth, trust, honesty, and the ability to pass the test when asked to sacrifice for others. And so our organizations begin to falter and fall apart. And it is the, for me, the fund foundational basis as to why we're struggling with what we're going to do with Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, it was a, a, an interesting soliloquy to get around to Ukraine. Um, what, you, <laughs> what, what you started out with was, and, and I don't know if you recognized it, from a song, which you started out with, we all need someone we can lean on. Mm -hmm. Bill Withers. I know, I, I recognize, I didn't just say, oh, uh, yeah, but uh, there are many ways we could have said what I said, but correct, yes. Yeah. And so I wanted to just sing along, you know, you can <laughs> lean on me. No, it, it, I think um, this concept of clanship that you talked about or tribe, is something that we look at from a, a business standpoint. And, and I think we all have different tribes. I think you have a, a, a tribe associated with the university. You have a tribe with of friends that are outside of the university. You may even have a, a, a religious group tribe. Um, so I, I think these tribes are provide us different needs uh, from a friendship standpoint. I think the part of the problems that we're dealing with in the Ukraine goes into this concept of tribalism in, in a sense as well, in terms of protecting turf, surrounding yourself, like with NATO, with a group of like-minded people who hopefully can all come together and find a way to deal with a competitive tribe or a competitive clan as might be the case. And, and, you know, you can go back and look evolutionarily and recognize that there has been a battle from a tribalism standpoint. And every tribal battle that I can think of has been for dirt. It, it's, whether it's the Middle East, whether it's Ukraine, whether it was the United States, everybody is battling for ownership of something. And so, uh, this the idea of trying to bring people together with a common belief um, who who you can call a friend uh, is I think it's important. I think it's important to have friends. and I think what what is happening more and more, if you want to use Ukraine as an example, is that Russia has identified what's left of their friends, and they have also, further alienated people who might have been their friends um, 
and, and started to create even more of a gap between the different clans, tribes, um, et cetera. There's a definition of marketing that's getting people who have a need to know, like, and trust you. I think making friends is getting people to know you, then to like you, and then to trust you. So it's all about relationships. Basically, what you've been talking about since you asked me the very probing question about uh, 26 minutes ago um, is really all about relationships, isn't it? Yes, but I'm I'm a very basic man, even though I I have a, a twisted vocabulary. You know, I, I was sitting here listening to you parse the problem of Ukraine, and it wasn't my intent to instill a uh, an esoteric discussion on on the Ukraine. So let's go back to friends because this this whole discussion about the Ukraine is so frustrating. You know, from a, I'm trying to find a metaphor or an analogy, and it's like the high school bully. Yes. Who picks on the new kid that just got into the school and, you know, basically says, well, give me your lunch money. Right. And, and the prior regime leadership has to decide whether they're going to go to war with the bully to maybe make friends with this new kid on the block um, and decide whether they want to go out in the schoolyard and have a battle. It's those type of... Um, classroom bullying type situations that uh, friends find out where their friends are. To take your analogy, the new kid in the class that gets gets marginalized or attacked by, by the class bully is the perfect example of the culture of the class. Which culture is going to predominate? Are we going to let the class bully truly pick on someone who doesn't have any friends? or hasn't had a chance to make any friends yet, uh, you know, or is the class culture gonna come through and say, give this kid a chance. If this kid is an asshole too, then he'll naturally gravitate to you. And you love the stories with the happy ending where the, 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 the kid who's being bullied goes to karate class, becomes a boxer. And with the help of his cohort, starts to be able to defend himself so that he starts to have the confidence to be part of the group. And, um, and, and, but the help comes from these colleagues that maybe haven't become friends yet, but they're giving, them the, giving him the tools to ultimately defend himself so that eventually when he gets into the fight with the bully, he's got the, the power in his own way to, um, take care of himself, put the bully in his place, and then ultimately get the respect of everybody else. Yeah, boy. Once again, you have really, I'm not sure what to, how to describe that comparison. I, I don't see that. I, first of all, we're not going to get high school or elementary students to think that way <laughs> in, 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 in our scenario. Secondly, regardless of what they know, it really does come down to how we feel about the situation. In this particular case, we're talking about cerebellar reactions to a situation. When the kids see a, see a new classmate being beat up on in, in the playground, even if they're just standing around, they're feeling bad about it. Every time the kid gets hit, they're feeling bad about it. And if nothing happens, they feel guilty for the rest of the week. And if it happens the next day, chances are somebody's going to step up and say, that's enough. 
I'm not spending my play period watching you beat up a beat up a kid. And that's when the class culture actually steps up. That's when the class culture or the teacher's culture actually is represented. When, when they finally realize the teachers over there doesn't even know what's going on. If I don't do something, this kid's going to get another black eye. You know, and we can't, and, and I'm tired of being scared all day that this kid's going to be, so I need to stop this. And, and so a group of friends finally step up. It's not because they're trying to empower this guy or, or girl. It's not because they're trying to give this person the wherewithal to stand up by themselves. They aren't thinking that far. They realize that the only reason they're not being beat up is because they have friends around them. But we don't know this kid. This kid's new. He's by himself. But yet I didn't sleep well last night because last night I remember this kid getting beat up and I didn't do a thing or I might feel guilty about it or I just may feel bad that I saw it and I don't want to see it anymore. Either way, I end up stepping up and, and doing it for visceral reasons, not political ones. Well, I was just trying to write the script for a new movie, but that's okay. It's probably... <laughs> There's my defensive mechanism. No, I mean, it, it reminds me of Karate Kid or some other movie where- Of course, yes. The kid comes home bruised and, and the parents notice it and say, what's going on? Oh, nothing, I just tripped and fell. And then it keeps coming home with bruises. Yeah, and I know. Finally, and, and, and then finally the guy grows muscles and learns techniques and then he kicks everybody else's ass. Right. I, yes, I understand. Yeah, that's the ultimate outcome and that's the- that's the hero worship story that everybody wants to think about. And I'm, and I'm saying that in reality, I mean, you know, I've, I've been that kid that was, that was picked on, but I've also been that kid that was rescued. And honestly, from those rescues, I learned my role as a member of the class. I realized that I had to take some risk if I wanted a day of, if I wanted to go to school in peace. I realized that I suffered when others suffered. I may not have gotten hit, but I thought about it at dinner that night. I thought about it in my sleep when I was alone. And I asked myself, what could I do? What could I have done? And it's amazing I had to ask myself because I knew all along what I, the whole time it was going on, I sat there thinking, are you going to do something about this? Are you going to step up and do something? And when I didn't, you know, even if I was the one who helped that guy get up and brushed him off and took him to the bathroom and washed out and, and helped him clean up, et cetera, that wasn't good enough. Well, you got to wonder what the dinner table conversations are like in the United States right now about this concept of friendship in, in, in the Russia-Ukraine discussion. And, and um, you would think that there would be a common... Or, or a universal belief that would bring even disparate people together. But even in a situation as polarizing as the bully, um, there are still people who support the bully. Of course, that's of course. And that's when you find out the, the real culture that you're living in. For, for the moment, let's cut off Ukraine. Let's just Please. talk about our local cultures. You know, the culture in, your, in the SCVMA when you were there, the culture in our faculty at Western, the culture in, um, 
in our university, the, the culture in, in your city? How do we react to those negative situations as a culture? Yeah, well, it, it, it's, it goes back to, uh, can you be friends with somebody who's on the side of the bully when you don't agree with what the bully is doing? So in your community, in your school, in your association, if there is, are people who are, have a position that is contrary to what your position is, could they ever be part of your friendship, your clanship, your tribe? So the answer to that question is absolutely yes. However, you tied that that difference to a bully. I'm talking about pure simple ideology and how and how it is expressed. I don't need you to believe what I believe, but I do need you to behave in a culturally acceptable way. Well, the bully was the extreme because like you can work your way down from the bully into the ideology. But you know Yeah, but the, but but see the bully chooses to enforce his ideology. Right. Right. So the and, bully and, and, may not the bully may not be you may not be somebody you could be friends with, but those people who have the same ideology but are not as aggressive about it, you can have a conversation with about Correct. It. That, Correct. That's why I was I was working down to the molecular level from the global level from that standpoint. Yeah. Well, I just think that just because people do bad things doesn't necessarily make them bad. And so I understand. And so, yes, bully behavior is a line too far for me. And so as long as you are exhibiting, as long as you prefer to enforce your ideology through bullying behavior, you will never be in, you will never be my friend. But if you are willing to exchange views in a behaviorally acceptable way, then there's a chance we might be, we may find common ground in other areas. And I'm just going to have to disagree with you in, in this particular area. But what I will not tolerate or accept is your manipulating community opinion or as opposed to persuading, being persuasive of, of your opinion. Uh, and I definitely, will, I definitely cannot stand the coercion that occurs in bullying behavior when it comes to your opinion. I, I firmly believe that in a true democracy, you have, to, you have the freedom. You don't have to respect my opinion. You have to respect my right to express my opinion. Thank you for joining us for another Courageous Conversation. Be sure to follow us and check back next week for more.